Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Amen. I know a lot of our folks are traveling and seen up, seen Facebook folks and other ones that have let me know they're on the road. But I'm glad you're here. Amen. You're having a staycation, right? Stay, stay home vacation. Uh, today we're entitling this "The Worth of Your Work." Amen. The worth of your work. John chapter 5. I'm going to read three passages out of the book of John. Uh, John 5 and 17, John 9 and 4, and then John 17 and 4. And all three of these passages is referring to work. Now, when you say work in our culture, in our American culture, what do you think about? First thing hits your mind. Job, right? Your job. Or men, two men, I said, you know, when two men meet that don't know each other, the first thing they say to each other is, where do you work or what do you do, right? Two women meet that's never met any other, they say, where'd you get those shoes, <laughs> right? We are different creatures, men and women, right? John 5 and 17, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working, talking about Father God. Until now, and I have been working. How many knows that job, Father God, does not have a job? Right? So when he's referring to he's working, he's not talking about a job. J-O-B, right? He's, and then Jesus says, I have been working. Now, Jesus did have a job at one time. What was his job? Carpenter. Worked at the carpenter shop. Uh, his dad, he worked there, and he was uh, referred to in Scripture as the son of the carpenter. And then, of course, his dad died sometime between the age of Jesus' age, when Jesus was 12, somewhere between 12 and 30 years of age, Jesus' dad died. And, uh, and then Jesus became known as the carpenter because he was the oldest in the family, and he continued on with the family business. In John 9 and 4, he, uh, he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And then in John 17 and 4, his last high priestly prayer on earth, Jesus was praying and he said to his father that I have glorified you on the earth and I have finished the what? The work which you have given me to do. Father, thank you for your blessing on your word. And on your people, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, to me, this has just been on my heart for a few days. It's the target. I don't think necessarily it's going to take me that long. I just want to go after what God's saying to go after. And that you realize the worth and the value of the work that God has in every person in this Place and every person that hears this message. Uh, you know, when God created, you know, humans come in two models, male and female, right? And before God created uh, man, uh, he, he created Eden or the Garden of Eden. He, in other words, he had a place prepared for them before he created them. That's the way God always does things. God's prepared the way before you go. God's prepared everything ahead of time. Before there was a such thing introduced into the world as sin that brought forth death, 
Revelation tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So God is a God that doesn't have a you know, plan B. God has always had his plan, and God has always anticipated what would happen, and he's always made preparation for that. But you got to understand that, that our potential as humans, in other words, to, to be able to do the thing that God has, has placed in us to do, the work that he's placed us to do, then we, it, it's essential that we stay connected in what God intended from the very beginning. And so we know the whole thing about the garden was relationship with Father God. And when God decided to make humans, uh, then from that point forward, God refused to be God apart from us. In other words, apart from our participation. And we see it right out of the beginning, even before Eve uh, is created. We see uh, God has created all the animals and all the beasts of the field, it says. And then it says he brought them to who? To Adam to see what he would call them, name them. And it said whatever Adam called them, God said that's what their name's going to be. Why did God do that? Because he is, he's having man to co-labor with him. I told you some months ago or weeks ago how that when Jesus is faced with a problem, there's no wine at the wedding that he's in attendance to. And his mother comes and says they have no wine. Then what Jesus does is he's going to turn water into wine. If you could turn water into wine, why do you need any kind of human help? Right? But he tells the servants to go fill the water jars, uh, those six uh, big gigantic clay pots. And they participated in the miracle of the water being turned into wine. Because God refuses to be God without our participation. Because we are in that triune relationship with the Father. And we're connected in that. And, 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 and so you got to understand that, that when God got ready to make, uh, before he made the stars, it says that he made the firmament. In other words, he made the place for the stars and the planets and all to go, right? And it said when he got ready to make the stars, he spoke to the firmament. He spoke to that thing. And those stars went into the place. And he said, it says he set them in. He set, he set those in. When he got ready to make the, the trees and the grass and the, and the shrubs and all the things that grow, it says he spoke to the soil. Before he, before he made the trees, how many knows he had the soil there waiting on the tree? And he spoke to that. And before he made the fishes and all the things that swim, God had the oceans made before he did that, right? And it says he spoke to the waters. And when he spoke to the waters, then the fish had a place to dwell and to, to, to flourish and to grow and to prosper. And, so, and then so, so, in other words, if you want to destroy a fish, remove him from the water. I mean, there's a fish, as soon as you take them out of water, don't instantly die. But their life is not nearly as, as wonderful if it was as when they were in the water. How many of ever seen a fish trying to breathe out of the water, moving his mouth? He's struggling, isn't he? Why? Because he's out of the place that God intended for him to be. How many has ever seen a tree uprooted from the soil? Soil is what give it life and strength and stability. And it doesn't instantly die. If you'll get it back in the dirt, it'll catch back up and go again, right? But you've removed it from what God intended it to be, the source of his strength. If you remove a star from the firmament, it's called a falling star. It falls to the earth, burns up, it's no more. Because it's left the place that God spoke it into existence to be, right? And so when God got ready to make the stars, he spoke to the firmament. He got ready to make the fish, he spoke to the waters. He got ready to make the trees, he spoke to the soil. But when he got ready to make you, he spoke to himself. 
Come on, somebody. He said, let us make man in our image. So God spoke to himself when he created you and I. And what God intends for you is for you to stay in that presence and enjoy the presence of God. Just like God intended in the Garden of Eden that he would come in the, in the cool of the day, the cool of the evening, so to speak. The word cool there, we think about, we, we say that to South Georgians, and they think, well, he's probably coming about 6 p.m. or something. But I told you the word in Hebrew translated cool is ruach, the spirit. It's, it, he, he come in the spirit. And, and, and he come to walk and to commune and to, to fellowship with God. And so when you don't walk in that, in that and recognize the presence of, of God all the time in your life, you're, you're like that fish that's been pulled out of the water. Your potential has been greatly reduced. You, you, your potential has been greatly reduced. It's like a, it's like a tree you've uprooted. It doesn't instantly die, but you're, the, 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 the power of your life is not functioning like God intended it to function. And, and it's because you're not, you're not in that place in that relationship that God wants and desires and is planned for you. Can you say, man, do you see that? And so, so the, 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 what you got to see is, is that work is not your job. If you're here and you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't have a job. I'm, you know, sometimes I used to kind of get on my wife, you know, for many years when our kids were small, she, she, she stayed home. And, and you want to get her mad, just tell her she don't work. She worked harder than I did. At least I got to clock out and come home. She never clocks out. Come on, somebody. Come on, women. Y'all see how I'm helping y'all. And, 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 but sometimes when she would talk to people, she would say, I'm just a housewife or I'm just a... And I've, I told her, don't, don't say I'm just a... Yeah, I'm a housewife. I, I care for my kids. I, that's just where she was doing the work. But it wasn't a job. Are you with me? So work's not your job. Job is what prepares you sometimes for your real work. Right? See, your, your job is what you get paid to do. Your, your work is what you were born to do. Big difference. Did you hear me? I said your, your job is your, what you're skilled at. You, if you don't have skill, they're probably not going to keep you on the job. But your job is your skill, but your work, now that's your gift. That's how God made you. God wired you, so to speak, for your work. You can learn a skill and get a job in that field, but your work, you were born with that on board. That gifting is on the inside of you. You know, you can be fired from your job, but you cannot be fired from your work. You can quit your job. But you can't never quit your work. Because God's put that work in you. And it don't matter what job you have and where you do that job, your work goes with you. And if you look back over your life, you've always done your work. Whatever kind of job you had. Do you see that? See, you, you can retire from your job, but you cannot retire from your work. Come on, somebody. You, you don't go to work, you manifest your work at your job that you go to. Your, your, your job is temporary, but your work is eternal, it's permanent. Come on now. See, your work is your purpose. 
you, you were born because of that purpose on the inside of you. You, you, you were not born to find your purpose. Uh, you were born to manifest your purpose. That there's something that God wants you to do in the sense that he made you to do it. And it made you necessary. I don't know if you've ever walked in some type of mechanical different shops and even automotive shops and different things. And there's times I have seen tools lying there that I had no clue what they were for. But the fact that that tool was there meant somebody created that for a purpose. Right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship. One translation renders that we are his masterpiece. And we are created in Christ Jesus, look at this, for what? For good what? Works. We're not talking about a job here. You, you've been created, and you're God's masterpiece, but you've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is before you were born. God chose you, and it said adopted you. That was his purpose before the foundation of the world. You're not some accident. You're, God, God's chosen you. Listen, you're not here on this earth as an experiment. You're here on assignment. Amen. Amen. And, and, and a lot of times we, we, we lose our, our calibration we, because we, we just think we're here and, you know, we, we go to, you know, we call it, we go to work. We have a job and we're trying to make a living. And, and all of that, in, in, in some essence, I, I get it. I, I'm, I, I do the same thing. It's true, but there's bigger, there's bigger than that. And, there, and there's, there's more than that. See, sometimes, you know, you, you see things and you wonder why, like, you know, you got to understand that, that when the Bible talks about man and it talks about the creation, you, you, you have to understand the value that, that, that some of, you know, your, in other words, your spirit and your soul was, was given to you by God. In Genesis 2 and 7, it said the Lord God formed man, formed man of the dust of the ground. That's the dirt, the dust of the ground. And, it says, and then it says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So you got to realize that, that, that part of you was created by God, and part of you was formed by God. In other words, your spirit and your soul came from him, but your body came from dirt that was formed. But what you got to do, and what I've got to do, is don't ever confuse your spirit with your body. Don't ever confuse the outside with the inside. Sometimes you see people, you know, well, we're born again, and when, you're, when, you, when you put that faith we sung about this morning in Jesus Christ, your spirit at that moment becomes alive to God. When the Bible talks, you're, you're dead in, in trespasses of sin. You're, you're dead in, in, in those things. In other words, what it's saying is you're dead to God. Nobody's awakened you to the reality and the truth of who you are in him. You, you're dead to that. How many heard people say, well, she's dead to me? Well, that person, they're dead to me. That don't mean the person's dead. It means they're dead to you. What you're, how many knows what that is? You're saying I'm not in relationship with that person. As far as I'm concerned, they're dead to me. That's what the scripture is saying, that we, there was a time that you were dead to God. 
It wasn't because God was dead to you. In other words, God wasn't saying, I, I, I don't want to kill you. I don't like you. You're not alive to me. It's, you, you don't understand the relationship that God has. You don't understand what sin has done and how it's blinded you and made you not recognize who God is for you and in you. That's why I told you over and over in Galatians where the apostle Paul, who was killing Christians in the name of God, he said that when it pleased the Lord who, who, who formed me in my mother's womb, he, he, created me in my mother's womb, he said, to separate me from my mother's womb, he said, to reveal Christ in me. He didn't reveal Christ to him because Christ was already there. Paul just didn't know it. And he said he revealed Christ in me. Why? Because Christ was in him even when he was killing Christians. He didn't understand that. He thought he was doing what he was doing in the name of God, but he was doing it in the name of religion. So you've got to understand with God that everything God does, God is foundational in all that he does. And he's already got everything prepared before you enter in on the scene. You understand? See, a lot of men, grow, we, you know, especially us that's grown up in church, we were told that we the head of the house. Then you got married and found out you wasn't. Not everything I say is inspired now, okay? So <laughs> I'm just, but we grew up. I mean, the Christians I hung out with, you're the head of the house, you know? Um, but but you, you are, but you just don't know what that means. Now, if you think it means, woman, you shall do what I say, <laughs> you're going to have a problem, big one. Men think when they hear they're the head of the house, that means I'm at the top. That means I'm the boss. Uh, but what it actually means is the opposite of that. It means you the bottom, and you're the foundation that carries the house. So when you're the head of the house, I want you to see it as the foundation. In other words, God is like the master builder. He begins with the foundation. And it's the foundation that actually holds up the house. The, the church is built upon, the, you know, the, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it says the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. In other words, they, they hold that, and it's that support, and it's that leadership that God has. And so you've you you got to see how God uh, sees things. And, and, and you've got to know that when, when it comes to marriage and when it comes to, to, to men and women, God gave Adam work. In other words, he placed work inside of Adam. But it wasn't a job that he had necessarily in Eden. It wasn't a job. There were things that God had made him responsible for. He told him in the garden that you're to tend it, you're to keep it, you're, you're to protect it. And, and, uh, and so when, when you realize that, that, that when, when, when work comes, if you will, before a woman comes, I'm saying that because we got some young men in here that need to hear this. See, you, you're supposed to know your work before you find you a woman. I'm not talking about just having a job, but I'm talking about to, to know your work. And, and, and many women, they, they're so frustrated because that they're married to a man who has never found out what his work is. Now, he's got a job, but he don't know what his work is. And, and so... A uh, man will get his value when he discovers his work, not from his job. But in this world, in our culture, a lot of men derive their, their value from the, the job they have. 
That's why sometimes when two men have never met, and I said they greet one another in the, in the first few uh, seconds, literally, uh, it's very common for men to say, what do you do? Because we're trying to get a label on you. I'm trying to see if you're above me, below me, or you know where you at in the, on the chart, you know. Well, I'm the vice president, you know, well, I'm the, I mean, that's wonderful. I'm not knocking any of the titles, and, but that doesn't where you get your value from. Now, your ultimate value becomes that you're creating the image and likeness of God. Uh, and I'm, when I'm saying this, I'm not talking about your value is in what you do for God. No, no. Your value is in God himself. And, and, but when, when a man finds out his work, and a woman too, but when a man finds his work, he don't have to hang out with the guys to get fulfillment. I mean, when Eve met Adam, she met that guy in two uh, ways. In other words, uh, first off, Adam is, knows his work, and he's in God's presence, and God's walking with him in the spirit. And then secondly, he knows his work, and he's, he's, he's already got that inside him. And so a woman should never marry a man unless she can find one that's got those two things going for him because you're going to have some problems. See, the Bible calls woman a helper, and it's not a demeaning thing to call a woman that, that she's your helper, helpmate, because the Holy Spirit is called your helper, and the Holy Spirit's God, right? And, and, and so you find your work, uh, you know, in that, that God has wired you for or gifted you for. Uh, a woman, in a sense, in that way, is like an incubator. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, you, you, you place an egg inside an incubator, and it's going to give you life, right? Because the conditions, the environment's going to be conducive for that. So, so you, it's like that with a woman. You, an incubator will multiply what you place in it. It will give it life, and it will give it back to you. So you give that woman, you give her a seed, uh, she multiplies it and gives it life, and she gives you a baby. Are you with me? Now you give her a house, she multiplies it, she gives it life, and she gives you a home. I mean, those are different than a home and a house. Now you give her groceries, she multiplies it, and she gives you a meal. You give her one word, Hang on now, don't get ahead of me. You give her one word, she will multiply it and give you back a paragraph. You give her frustration, she will multiply it and give you hell. You can always tell what you are giving a woman by what she's giving back to you. Come on women, I'm trying to help y'all this morning. See, you got to understand that God has placed inside you this gift. And everybody in here has got to work, and it's a different work for everybody. But it's an important work, and it's, and, it's, and it's very valuable. It's worthy because of the worth that's in God and God's placed in you. See, that's why Proverbs 29 and verse 18 says, where there is no vision, the people do what? They perish. And notice it doesn't say where there's no husband, people perish. It doesn't say where there's no man, people perish. It doesn't say where there's no woman, people perish. It doesn't say where there, where there is no leader, people perish. But it says where there's no vision. That makes vision extremely 
important. And the greatest gift, listen to me, the greatest gift that God has ever given a human is vision, not sight. Not physical sight, but vision. Because they're two different things. See, in fact, your sight, my sight, what I see in the natural, we call it, what I see is oftentimes, if not all the time, an enemy to my vision. Because a lot of times what I see contradicts my vision. And what I see tries to be more real to me than what I, the vision I have or the vision I've believed in. And so your, your, your sight actually tells you, uh, it, it tells you how things are right now. Your sight says this is how it is. But your vision tells you, no, 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 this, this, uh, your vision sees how things can be, not how things are. And so sight is just a function of your eyes. But the vision is a function of your heart. That vision is not coming from these eyes. It's coming from here. And when I say heart, I'm not talking about that organ that pumps in your chest. I'm talking about your spirit. That spirit where God dwells and, and, and inhabits on the inside of us. And so you've got to always live your life by vision, not by sight. Not by what you hear. Not by what you taste, not by what you touch, not by what you see with your natural eyes. But you've got to live your life out of that spirit and out of that vision. And you've got to stay walking toward that that God's put on the inside of you. Even if your eyes tell you it's never going to happen, I don't see it. I don't see no way this is going to happen. It's not what you see. Listen, if what you can see right now is not what you saw with your vision, then what you see right now is temporary and passing. And, and, and don't, don't invest in that. Don't invest your, your strength and your energy. And don't give up on the vision. Because if you give up on the vision, then you perish. Because God's called you to live out of that vision. And vision is so important. Amen? I was thinking while they were doing the worship and how, how all, all these things that God's called us to do. And there's things like I, I read uh, uh, two, two times in, in the scripture in Acts where Paul, one time it said Paul was annoyed. Uh, and, and, and then another time, and anybody he was annoyed about was this, this demonic girl keeps following him and saying these men are men from God. And then another time he was at Mars Hill. And he was waiting on uh, uh, Timothy and Silas and, and those that he had sent for to come. And it says while he was at Mars Hill, he was walking around in Athens. And he was looking at all the, all the, the, the false gods and the statues and all this, this stuff. And basically their, their main god was Zeus. And that's who they worshipped and that's who their philosophers preached about. And that's who, who their poems spoke of. And so uh, it says that he was provoked. Uh, he was provoked, it said, by what he saw. That he, he said, it says in Acts 17, he was provoked that the whole city was given over to these false idols that, that meant nothing. Now, Paul didn't go off on some rampant, raging, preaching fit over what he saw. He said, you know what? I saw a statue that y'all have. And it says on the inscription, to the unknown God. So Paul connected with their culture. And he said, uh, that to, so that God that you got inscribed on in your statue to the unknown God, he said, I have come to tell you who he is. And he hooked up right with their culture. And then if you read Acts 17, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but he says it now, and he even quotes in the Bible, says, now your poets have said. 
And actually, he's quoting, if you've done some research, he's quoting out of their, their philosophy and their poems about Zeus. And he takes many things that he says directly out of their stories about Zeus, who is not a real god at all. But he begins to connect with their culture, and he begins to speak to them, and he begins to explain to them Jesus. And he talks about something they never even heard about, and that was the resurrection. But it says he was provoked. I want to ask you, what provokes you? Because I know every one of you, there's something, there's some injustice, there's something you see that provokes you. It's like Moses. Moses was provoked when he saw an Egyptian beating up on a Hebrew. Now, Moses had a job. His job was to be the prince of Egypt in the palace. He was adopted by Pharaoh. And so that was his job. He looked like an Egyptian. He had his hair cut like an Egyptian. He went to all Egyptian schools. He learned every god that the Egyptians worshipped. He ate Egyptian food. He spoke Egyptian language. But his work on the inside was Hebrew. And his work was a deliverer. And it don't matter how old you, you are and how mad you get at God and how many times you quit. And so he, he mishandled his work. And he murdered an Egyptian. Now, see, you might be provoked by people that, you know, by an abortion deal. But you don't go down there and shoot the abortion doctor. That's mishandling what provokes you. That's demonic. And so he, he killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand. And he said, you know, it's all done, over with, I'm out of here. And he runs. And so he resigned from his job, but he cannot outrun his work. And now he's 80 in the wilderness. I want a simple life. I want to just be a little shepherd. And I just want to look at these few sheep and these goats. And I don't want nobody to bother me. And I ain't going to bother nobody. And I'm done with all that stuff. And I am not no deliverer. I'm not doing that stuff no more. And one day a bush starts talking to him. <laughs> a bush burns but don't burn. You hear what I'm saying? And God talks to him. Can you imagine trying to explain that to yourself? Well, I was out in the desert in the bush just I heard God talking to me. What did he look like? A bush on fire? And God speaks to him. He says, son, I know you're 80 and you think you're done, but I'm going to send you right back where you come from because your work is on the inside of you. And I've called you to be a deliverer. And you're a deliverer. And so go get the delivering my people. Well, I can't talk, God. I, 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 I stutter. when. Well, I'll send your brother with you. You just whisper in his ear and he'll do the talking for you. But you're going. Well, how do I know I'm going, you're going to be with me? Well, take your hand now and, uh, and put it inside your, your robe. And then pull it out again. And his hand was leprous, white as snow. And he said, now put it back in there again. And he did and pulled it out. And it was clean as before. God said, how's that? He said, well, I don't know about that. He, he said, well, that staff you got in your hand, how about throwing it on the ground? And so he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And not just any serpent, not a play serpent, not a rubber serpent, but a viper that was poisonous is the Hebrew context. And he told him, he said, take it by the tail. If you're going to pick up a snake, which I won't, <laughs> but if you're going to pick up one, people I've watched do it, you don't pick them up by the tail because that head's coming around to bite you. You're going to catch them right behind the head so you can control the bite. Moses picked it up by the tail. 
See, some of us are afraid to pick up that that God's told you. You've got mad and throw down your ministry. You've thrown down what God's told you. And when you throw it down, you're afraid to pick it up again. You're afraid it'll kill you. You're afraid it'll bite you. But it won't. It'll turn back into a staff. It'll turn back into what you're going to use in a few days to part the Red Sea and make a way where there is no way. Come on, somebody. See, what is it that provokes you? See, Nehemiah was born in Babylon. And now the Persians have defeated Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the Babylons, and now the Persians are in charge. And now Nehemiah is the cupbearer for this Persian king. He's got a great job as long as he lives. Now he's got a dangerous job because before the king takes the sip of wine, Nehemiah drinks out of it first to make sure it's not poisoned. And the king watches him, and if he don't drop dead, then he'll go ahead and drink some of it or eat whatever the food is. He's the cupbearer. But it's a cushy job. It's like you right up there. You right up there with the king. And so you got a good place to live, got a good salary. Everything's good as far as all that goes. He's, he's a Jew. He's a Hebrew, but he's never been to Israel. But it's, in his, it's on the inside of him. And so his brothers come from Israel. What's happened to Israel when Nebuchadnezzar went through there? He destroyed the city, burned the walls down, tore the gates off the hinges, and set fire to the whole thing. People were scattered, the few that didn't get killed, and the people are starving, and they don't even have a city to be protected anymore. It's horrible conditions. These brothers come, and they, they, they tell Nehemiah the condition of Israel, and particularly Jerusalem. And it breaks his heart. And the Bible says for days he, he sits down, and he weeps, and he mourns, and he cries. Why is he crying? He, never, he, he wasn't even born in, in Israel. But deep down, his work is on the inside. And so he, he can't hide his hurt because he's being provoked by the pain. And he stands before the king and he wipes his eyes and he tries to do his job as best he can. But the king is smart. You don't get to be a king by being stupid. And he says, what's this? Because you're not sick. This is none other than sadness of heart. What's wrong? And it was, it was a great terror for the king, for you to be sad in his presence, because that had many people executed. Just be, you don't do that in the presence of the king. But this king had then got his heart attached to Nehemiah. And he said, now what's wrong, son? Why, why is your countenance dropped in your face so sad? He said, oh, king, please beseech me and hear my, my story. And he tells him about the condition of Israel. And in a roundabout way, this king is the one that destroyed Israel himself in the sense that he destroyed those that destroyed Israel. And uh, he had no love for, for Israel. Uh, he was a conquering king, Persian empire. And so when Nehemiah tells him the condition of his people, and, and then the king says to this, now you're crying about it, but what you want to do about it? See, some folks, that's, how, that's as far as they get. They just cry about it, but they don't ever do nothing about what they're crying about. He said, what you want to do about it? He said, I, I want to go back. To, uh, to, I want to go to Israel, and I want to rebuild them walls, and I want to make new gates and hang them, and I want to have provisions for the people and food for them, and, and I want to you know, uh, be able to fend off the enemies of Israel. And the king says, I'll pay for every bit of that. He said, how long are you going to be gone? Nehemiah says, I'm not sure. He said, well, here's letters of authority, and I'm going to send an army with you to keep you safe while you go. 
And I'm going to give you this paper here, and this is going to give you the right to chop down any tree you want to build those walls and to build those gates. And the Bible said, because see, Nehemiah was a builder. Now, Moses was a deliverer. His work was deliverance. Nehemiah's work was to build. And the reason he wanted to build is because his love for the people. And so he went back and he restored that city. In other words, he did something about the work that was on the inside. Now, see, when you read your Bible, I was sitting there on the front row. I hadn't even thought about this until the praise was going on. And I said, God, send in those folks like that. Or let those people like that awaken and to see the value of the work that you've put inside them. So God, give us people like Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, who said at the seat of customs was a tax collector, and people hated him because of his job. God, send the people that people hate because of their job to Grace Point. We'll take them. And God, let, let send those like the, the Mark that wrote the book of Mark, because his name was John Mark. And I don't know if you know who John Mark is, but John Mark is the one that Paul and Barnabas had an intense, vicious argument. And Paul had done went on a missionary journey, and his first missionary journey, and he carried this little upstart uh, wannabe a disciple named John Mark with him, and, 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 and stuff got tough, and times got hard, and the ministry got violent, and John Mark skedaddled back home and abandoned Paul. Paul took it personally, and he said, mm-mm. Barnabas said, let's take John Mark. And Paul said, he's not going on this second missionary journey because he done abandoned me one time, and once you hurt me one time, I'm done with you. How many knows there's some people like that, and I think I'm preaching to something like that? And we can all be like that. You're okay, I, you know, fool me once, but not twice. First time, your fault. Second time, be my fault. Mm-mm, you ain't getting the second time. Come on now. And that's the way Paul was. And I can relate to his feelings. But Barnabas argued that let John Mark go. Paul said he's not going. They just had to part ways, the Bible said. And the Bible said Barnabas took John Mark. Because, see, Barnabas is the encourager. Barnabas just loves everybody. He's my ivory. Barnabas, that's my ivory right there. (laughs) Just loves everybody. Give you a thousand chances. (laughs) Just keep on loving that's the way Barnabas was. He, he, he was an encourager. He had the gift of, exer- of encouragement. That's a gift. He had the gift on the inside of encouraging. He's always going to be encouraging. That don't never mean that he don't have tough times, but he's, his, his gifting is just to encourage. Paul said he ain't going. So they, they heatedly departed from one another. But you know what? One day Paul's in prison. And when you're in prison, they say you got time to think about some stuff. And he wrote a letter, and he told Timothy, he said, bring John Mark with you when you come, for he is beneficial to me and the ministry. And that man that Paul gave up on for a while wrote one of the greatest books that we call one of the four Gospels, and it bears his name, Mark. Give us people like Luke that was a physician, very intelligent man, very astute man, very uh, uh, a meticulous man. And he wrote the book of Luke to old Theophilus the king, and he was precise in his recordings of the life of Jesus Christ. Now we got Matthew, Mark, Luke. Let's don't forget John, one of the sons of thunder. 
And they wasn't called sons of thunder as a compliment. Sons of thunder was translated thunder in Greek, but it means sons of chaos. Jesus said, you and your brother James, you boys cause chaos everywhere y'all go. These, these two brothers was rough. They fight you and then talk about why. They are fishermen, and their daddy's a fisherman, and they live around the Sea of Galilee, and you don't go down there and say, anybody down here want to whoop me, they'll be on you whooping you. These guys is rough, cussing, tough people. And, but Jesus said, even though you've been known as sons of chaos, I'm gonna, you, you're going to spread my gospel. John goes to a city, and he's preparing the way for Jesus to come as a disciple, and the city refuses. We don't want Jesus. Boy, that made John mad because he's used to just whooping people that don't like it like he likes it. And he's standing at the city limits. And now Jesus comes and shows up and he says, all right, Jesus. Then people said they don't want you. Shall we not call down fire like Elijah did and Elisha did and let's burn this place to the ground? Do you know he was being very biblical? Do you know he was using scripture? Do you know that John was quoting Old Testament events that were true, not fictitious? And he was very, he's being very biblical. But he didn't understand nothing about no grace and who was standing in front of him. And Jesus said, John, you don't even know what kind of spirit, bro, you in. I didn't come to destroy nobody. I came to save life. He said, let's just go to another city. No big deal. They don't want me. We won't come. But there's plenty of cities that want me. Let's go there. This guy, John, who bears that book and the books, the three little ones that bear his name, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, who got a revelation of the love of God. And he's the one that stood at the cross when all the other disciples are hiding, scared to death for their life while Jesus is being crucified. He finally breaks his fear and comes out and stands there with the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, of whom Jesus cast out seven demons. He stands there with these women, and he walks up, and Jesus sees him, and he says, John. Behold my mother. Jesus gave the physical care and stewardship of his mom over to this one. Because he had had a revelation. And from that point in the story, in the book of John, to the book concludes, John only refers to himself, who is the author of the book. I'm the disciple whom the Lord loves. See, we grew up in a church that said, how many of y'all love God? We all love God. And we stand on our tippy toes and we try to love God so much that we think if we love him hard enough, he'll love us back. But it don't work that way. Your identity has to turn to 180. And your identity means nothing unless you say, I'm a disciple. That means a learner that the Lord loves. And I start from that. He loves me. The fact is he loves me. He loves me when I'm clean. He loves me when I'm dirty. He loves me when I sin. He loves me when I don't. He loves me when I will. He loves me when I won't. He loves me all the time. I'm loved by God. I'm loved by God. And John changed that day. And the last oldest chronological book in the whole New Testament is the book of John. And he wrote it when he was 93 years old. And he'd done been on the island of Patmos. And he'd already wrote the book of Revelation. And they had already tried to burn him in oil, but he would not burn. And they finally so frustrated when he was on that Alcatraz, so to speak, of their day, that they finally, an old man said he could call much more trouble, turn him loose. And when he got back home, the brother said to him, John, 
Would you just not write? Would you write one? Would you write down what you what you know about this Jesus? And he sat down after three days of fasting and prayer. This is church history, not scripture. He three days he fasted and prayed, and he said, "I will write it down." And he starts out in John, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was face to face with God." And John starts from that perspective. And nobody came at it from that perspective. And John gives us the most amazing one of the Gospels, in my opinion, of all four. And then we got people like that wrote the book of James. And it's not James, the brother of John, sons of chaos, but it's James, the brother of Jesus. Half-brother, if you will. But he's one of the brothers that, that, when, that, that it says in Scripture that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Sometimes your own kinfolk won't even believe what you believe about Jesus. But Jesus' own family, his brothers, his mother even struggled at a time. And, and, and one time Jesus was teaching and the place was packed out. And outside they, they, they told his mama and his brothers and sisters that he's, he's lost his mind. He's going wacko. He's going around telling people he's the son of God. And we know Joseph was his daddy. He, he, he's gone crazy. Y'all need to go get him. You need to go get your hands on him and get, help him out, talk some sense to him. So outside, they knock on the door, you know, and they said, tell, tell, tell Jesus, Mary's talking, tell Jesus that, I, that I'm out here and his brothers are out here. We want to talk to him. So they go in there and they interrupt his teaching and they said, Jesus, your mama and your brothers are out and they want to talk to you. Jesus said, who is my mama? Who is my brothers? But he that doeth the will of the Father, yet they are my brother and my sister. And he didn't go out. Because the scripture said they came to take hold of him. They were going to take him back to a house like a crazy person. They did not believe who he was. But when Jesus died on the cross, rose the third day, and appeared to those in that upper room, who included Mary, who included James, James became a believer, and he's got the august privilege that he wrote a little book, not very big, but however he has it, the book of James was written by one who did not even believe for a long time that Jesus was even who he said he was. But there he's pinning the truth of the gospel. Those are the people whose lives were changed and who wrote the New Testament that you hold in your lap that we read from every day. A little old timid, sickly little boy named Timothy. And yet now we have a Bible book that names his name, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. And we, we have all these people. And see, you are some of those people. I'm those people. I don't know where you fit in the whole scheme of things. Some of you might be a deliverer. Some of you might be a builder. Some of you are an encourager like Barnabas. Some of you, some of you kind of come up rough like Peter. Man, that's a guy that denied even you, Jesus, yet he carries his privilege to write 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And he wrote the Bible inspired by God. And we read his words today. That's who God's placed on the inside is himself and his work comes through you. And it is so valuable, and you are so needed. And you may be what the opportunity, wherever you go, you do your work. 
Before I was an official preacher, I was preaching. When I was the chief of the Merchant Medical Service for 20 years in Tifton, I was the chief of 12 of those 20 years. But you know, I was always preaching <laughs> in some form. I, I, I would talk to people. The men would be going through divorce. I had 34 employees. Men would go, you know, go through trouble, go through difficulty, marriages, you know, and I'm sitting in there, and they're coming in my office, you know, and, Chief, I need to talk to you, and I'm counseling, and I'm praying with them. I remember one time my, my secretary that I knew her life was pretty tough, and she had some real rough things that went on sometimes, like all of us do. And one night I dreamed, and I saw her so heartbroken that she was contemplating uh, taking her life, I believe. So when I went to work the next day, I called her in, and I said, uh, I just want to talk to you. And uh, I didn't normally get to that personal level. But I said, I, I had a dream last night, and I, 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 you know, I, I don't know if this is right or not, but I just saw you hurting so bad that you'd even thought about taking your life. Well, when I said that, and she never cried. She was so tough. She had to be tough, work around 34 paramedics. But she, she just bursted into tears. And I had the privilege of praying with her. And I told her, if you ever need me in jail, all you got to do is call us. We'll be here. We love you. Value you. See, it's like that vision that Paul had. And, and, and when they had that big argument with, with, with Barnabas about John Mark, then Paul said he took Silas and he said, man, me and you going to go get it done, man. We're fitting a rocket on this second missionary journey. And so it said that they were going to go to to Asia to preach, you know, and the Spirit said no. And he said, well, then we'll go. You know, the Spirit said no. Y'all, sometimes the Spirit will say no. It ain't all yeses, but the no's for purpose. If you get a no, it's for purpose. Value the no's as well as the yeses. Go to Asia to preach no. The Holy Spirit forbade them. But we'll go over here to this area, to the Greeks. Holy Spirit forbade them. Well, let's go to this area then and preach. No, the Holy Spirit forbade them. I don't know what to do, Paul said. You know what you do if you don't know what to do? You don't do nothing. So that means just relax. You're not loved by God for doing. You're not a human doing. You're a human being. Just be. That means if God ain't told you nothing to do, don't do nothing. You're on vacation. Enjoy. You'll get a mission. Just relax. And then so Paul didn't know what to do, so he didn't do anything. Most of us run and do something because we feel value if we do. No, your value comes from him. So Paul goes, you know, takes, he goes to sleep, and he has a vision. And he sees a man from Macedonia. And the man says, come over, help us. Come help us. So Paul gets up the next morning, and he shares the vision with Silas. And, and he says, Silas, I think we're supposed to go to Macedonia. And, and I saw a vision of a man saying, come help us. And so Silas says, okay, you know. And, it, and I love this in Scripture. It says that, that Paul reckoned or he considered or he, he, he just put his confidence in. He, in other words, he wasn't sure, like, I know that God. He wasn't none of that arrogant. I know God spoke to me. He wasn't none of that. He, he just perceived, it says, that the Lord was saying. So in faith, he went. He gets over there, and he meets, a, after he's been there, the Bible said, for many days, he hears about a prayer meeting down by a river, and it's uh, led by a woman named Lydia. Paul didn't have no trouble with women leading prayer meetings, you know. And so he went down there, and she was a seller of purple. 
She had a business, and so he went down and stayed with her and hung out with her in the prayer meeting. And it would be a long time later that Paul would, would be provoked to, 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 to frustrated because of that demonized woman that was following him and saying, these men be the men from God. They've come to tell us the way to Jesus. How many knows what that woman was saying was, was right? In other words, the words were true, but the spirit it was coming from was demonic. I've had people, I, I had somebody come to my church one time back at, not this church, where I pastored at Cornerstone, and this man came to one of our men's meetings, and, 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 and he was come as a guest of another man, and it was an atmosphere where you could say something, and he spoke and said something, and, and, and everything he said was right. But something in my spirit said, something ain't right there. I could not mark his words as being wrong, but I marked his spirit as being wrong. And later on, I, the Holy Spirit revealed to me is that man became part of our church. I even called where he come from, the pastor of another church in another city. I said, this man has come from your church and said he wants to be a member of our church and, and where I pastor. And I just wanted to get a reference and, and, you know, and honor you by calling you and telling you that. And, and he said, yeah, he told me. And I said, is there anything you need to tell me about this man you know, and his family as he comes? And he said, no, pastor, he'll be a blessing to you. I said, okay, thank you, brother. And we hung up. And then later on, and my spirit was still grieved. And the Holy Spirit revealed to me that he was struggling with, with uh, homosexuality uh, sin. And he was a predator in my church. Uh, that he was, that was going, God showed me. And so I brought him to my office. Though he was married, he had a little daughter. And I, and I wasn't mean. I just brought him into the office. And I wasn't being mean. And I probably, you know, I, I did the best I could with what I knew back then. But I just looked at him and, and I said, you, he, he, he was happy to be in the pastor's office, really. Because, you know, he said, well, he said, what, what's up, pastor? What you? And I said, you're probably wondering why I called you in here. And he said, yes, sir. And I said, well, I just want to say this to you, brother. I said, you're either uh, practicing homosexuality or you're struggling with it. Which is it? I thought I'd just go ahead and just kaboom, you know, pull the grenade, drop, <laughs> just see what flies. And he just stood there and stared at me. Now, we love people no matter what sin, but we don't love the sin part because it hurts people. And then I, I, I said this to him, and he said, uh, you're right. He said, I'm struggling with that. He said, I've struggled with it since I was in the seventh grade where I was molested by a person, by a teacher. And he said, I've struggled with it all my life. And uh, I said, you ever tell it to your other pastor? Where you come from? He said, yeah. Well, didn't that pastor do me a favor by concealing that? And this man, I found out, was going to single women's, uh, women that were divorced. He was going to their little league games, and he had an affinity to hang around kids and people that had male kids. And then he confessed to me that he was hanging out with a family in my church that had five, I think it was five sons, and he was staying at their house hanging out with these five young boys from teenagers on down. And they were looking at uh, pornography together uh, at that house. And so God intervened because shepherds are good because God by the Spirit will reveal shepherds that we care for the flock. And God didn't want one of my little kids getting molested by this guy and me to have to deal with and they have to deal, and that mom have to deal, and that kid have to deal with the lifelong damage of that hurt.
And so God revealed it by the Spirit to me. God reveals what he wants to reveal if we'll, if we'll ask him. And I love this man. And I said, brother, we're going to love you and we're going to help you. And we won't vocalize this sin. And I want to counsel with you and I want to pray with you. We're going to meet with you and God will deliver you. And you, you, you'll be free from this and you won't struggle no more. And I said, now I'm going to ask you not to go to this house and hang out with these young men no more. Don't do that, okay? Don't even go to their house. Would you do that? Yes, sir, I won't do that. Don't go to their house now because don't mess with these young boys. And don't, don't do that no more. You've been honest with me. You told me what you were doing there. And you said you ain't touched nobody, but you're struggling with it. But you want to, but you hadn't yet. And God's intervened here. Let's don't go there no more. Okay, Pastor, my elders on you. Some weeks went by, and one of my elders drove by the house and saw the man's truck behind the house of that place. He was there again. I called him in and said, Brother, we, we, you wanted this. I said, the elder so-and-so went by, saw you, your truck there now. You violated what I asked you to do. Uh, let me just say he didn't respond good. I can't tell you what he said to me, but he called me a bunch of names in curse words. And he says, I'm, you're not my judge. You don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I blankety-blank please. And, you know, uh, you know, and he just really put out the words on me. And I said, that's fine. It's, a, you know, it's fine. But I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to excommunicate you from the church publicly. Not to be vicious, but to be biblical. Be New Testament. Be a grace church. So on a Wednesday night, I stood and I asked his wife and, and the little daughter, y'all don't come tonight because this probably won't be good for you. But I said to the church, I said, we have a brother in our church. I called his name. Who has committed a grievous sin and he is rebellion against God's authority. And he will not uh, obey those that are over him in the Lord, in the fear of the Lord and reverence of the Lord. So therefore we publicly, and I publicly this moment, execute this man from membership of this body. And I charge this church not to break bread with our, with our brother or have fellowship with him until at such time that he repents, which means changes his mind concerning this sin. And I ask you to do as the scripture says, to count him and treat him as a heathen until he repents. All that was recorded. It wasn't fun. I hated every moment. But if you're going to live Bible, you got to do Bible. You know, most people ain't never even seen a New Testament church act like a New Testament church. I had people get mad at me. I remember one lady brought a teenager, and the teenage girl was just a crying. <laughs> and she said, she wants to talk to you, Pastor. And she said, she said, and I said, what's wrong, darling? She said, I thought church is supposed to love people. And you turned him out. I said, I turned him out because I love him. I said, just watch what God does. She said, I don't understand this. I said, you don't have to. I'm the shepherd. Turned him out. Weeks, months went by. Months went by. It had nothing to do with us. But his wife still come, amazingly. She still came. We loved her. I never told the church what sin he had committed. Never said the sin. I just said a grievous sin. Sometime later, I, I, he was listening to the messages, though, on, on our media. And, 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 and so I preached a message called you know, remember me. And it was about the, the thief on the cross that said, remember me. That thief wasn't saying, remember me. Let's remember how fond this time is together. Webster's definition of remember. He was saying, remember me. 
put me back together because sin has separated and tore me all to pieces. And that message got to that brother. And he called and said, can I have a meeting with Pastor? And I said, yes, to my secretary. And I met with this man. He said, Pastor, I heard that message. And he said, I want God to remember me and put me back together in every place I'm broke. He said, would you take me back? I said, this Wednesday, I will receive you back into fellowship in this body. And we will love you and we'll pick up right where we left off, my brother. And I stood before the church and he said, Pastor, before we have this coming Wednesday, can I tell the church what I did and what I was struggling with? And I said, you can name it if, that's a, if you want to, but I don't want no details. <laughs> but you can name the sin. He said, I just believe people that are struggling with that need to hear that you can have victory over it. So I let him have his little five minutes of testimony. And I charged our congregation, we will receive this brother back in fellowship. We will love him as we always have loved him. And we will, we will fellowship and commune and, 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 and all that. And God restored and healed and delivered that man. And that man went to our church for years and there was never no issue. Because we was a New Testament grace church. And that man then later moved to another state. He moved to Mobile, Alabama. I had a pastor friend that I knew very well there who had came and met with me, and we were friends. And when he moved to Mobile, he said, Pastor, do you know any church out there? And I said, in fact, I do. And I said, I know this man, and I know him personally. Great church, great man. And uh, I said, now I'm going to call him and tell him you're going to uh, be part of that if that's what you want. And I said, now I'm going to tell him, you know, what you had struggled with in the past, not to, not to malign you, but just so that he can shepherd you properly and be there for you, and he won't judge you. You'll be there to love you. And he said, absolutely, Pastor, please tell him. And he went out there and moved out there with his wife and his little girl. And as far as I know, they still live there today. And for years, and my wife sitting there knows what I'm telling you, they would come and visit their family back in where we, in Cook County. And all the time when they would come back to visit, he would always say, Pastor, can I just have an hour or two with you? And then his wife would want to meet with my wife and hang out with her a little bit. And he just said, I just want to tell you how it's going in my life. I just want to tell you what God's doing. And so he'd come back every six months or so and visit, and I'd have a lunch with him or I'd have a meal with him. And God changes people's lives forever. And nobody's beyond hope. And nobody's so deep in sin that God can't rescue them. But what you do is you just love them. But sometimes love looks weird to people that don't know what love, biblical, New Testament. And Paul did that. Paul did that. And, and, and people hadn't ever heard of that before. And I wasn't trying to be all that. I was just trying. But God used his methodology to save that man. And, it, and, and, it, and, and, and he come back to the house of the Lord. And as far as I know today, he's doing well. I want you to stand with me. What, what provokes you? What's inside you? What injustice do you see? What thing bothers you? And we can say it that way in South Georgia. What, what, what is it? It's different for all of us. How many of you in here kind of feel like you know what your work is? Not your job, but your work. Would you just, oh, I'm just trying, as a pastor, I'm trying to just take a pulse here. You know, you, you really believe you know what your work is. And you know, it don't matter where your job is, but you keep doing your work, don't you? Amen. And your work will grow. And you keep doing it. I think about Pastor Keith. It didn't matter if he was driving the big truck, he was still doing your work. <laughs> Wherever he's been, he's always been doing his work. And I, I, I just know his life's so good. 
I watch so many of you. You're so precious, and you do your work, no matter where your job is, no matter where your job carries you. You're always doing your work. You're always doing it. What I do now out with the Medicare stuff, I'm, I'm doing my work. I'm still praying for people. I've had people just start sharing their heart and just saying, you know, about this, and they got this. And I don't never go out there with the Christian badge or the preacher badge. Sometimes in a lot of places that hinders you. <laughs> but when they go to that level, I say, well, listen, I don't even tell them preacher. I just said, you've told me about your cancer or you told me about this. Would it be all right if I prayed with you? Little lady the other day in Albany, very desperate situation. And, and she started telling me about her cancer and her fear of it coming back again. You could just feel the fear. so tangible. And I said, can I pray with you? And she turned her head like that. She said, you would pray with me? I said, yes, ma'am. It would be my honor to pray with you. And she said, I believe in prayer. Please pray for me. And we're standing outside her little trailer. And I laid my hands on her. And I said, Father, we come into the agreement with you and your word and what you said concerning this woman. And I take your side, and I agree with you. And I say what your word says concerning her. And by your stripes, she was healed. She's not going to be. She was. And if she was, she is. And I pray the manifestation of that in this physical body. And I agree with you. And you said we would lay hands on the sick and they would recover. And so I declare absolute recovery for this woman. And I say to her in your name, she shall recover. And she shall live and not die. And she shall by her living declare the works of the Lord. And I just began to pray. And the more I prayed, the more she cried. And you know before it was over, she had me crying. Because I am a wimp. <laughs> <laughs> if you're crying, I always tell my little Addie Boo, my granddaughter, I said, Listen, don't you cry now. You're going to make Poppy cry. Don't you cry. You know, come on now. And, uh, but that lady, she just, those tears right there. And I thought about when I left there, it wasn't to enroll her necessarily, which we did in a Medicare thing. It was to just pray for her. She told me when I went, she followed me to the truck. She said, You don't know how much this meant to me. She said, God sent you. To my house. That's what she said. She said, God sent me. She said, I've been raised so hard. She said, I've lived here in Albany with all my children. She said, I've had eight children. She said, my mama had 15. She said, you ever remember families that big? She said, well, that's what it was back then. She's in her late 70s, 80s now. She said, I, she said I would, my mama would walk us to school. And she said, we would leave two hours early. And we would walk all the way into the city, all been to school. Because my mama said, we're going to be there and we're going to be on time. And she said, she had us all that was in school. She said, we walked there. And she said, my mama would be there waiting on us. She said, there wasn't no school bus hauling us nowhere back then. And she said, we walked back home. She said, my mama said, I'm going to make sure y'all get an education. And y'all going to go somewhere in this world. And that love, she said, that's how I was raised. And I said, God sees every bit of that right there. She had that heart. Go do the work. Would you go do the work? You're going to be around some people maybe Thanksgiving that need your work, not your job. Just let the work flow out of you. Any of this make sense to you today? Man, I love you guys. Let me pray for you. Okay, God bless you. <clears throat> Father, thank you for loving us. 
Thank you for the work that you've given us to do in your name. Thank you, Lord, Father, that you work. Jesus works and we work. And thank, thank you for the gift that manifests through that work into this world that so desperately needs to know your grace and your love and your mercy. I pray, Father God, that you would cause your partnership, your, your spirit as we co-labor with you, that we'd lay hands on the sick and see them recover. We would do the work that you've sent us to do, and we would see the fruit thereof in Jesus' name. I pray for all the Matthews and the Marks and John Marks and all those people that we named that other people gave up on. Lord God, you never give up on us. And may they come forward and be living epistles written of you, read of men, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. We love you.